This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. On the 25th of September of this year, Dr. Fornche Ryan of Loyola Institute Dublin gave the talk Consumerism Replaces Christianity, The Case for Ireland as the eighth lecture in the series The Many Guises of European Catholicism, hosted by the Center for Theology and Religious Studies, as well as the Center for European Studies at Lund University. I've given this paper is Consumerism Replaces Christianity? The Case of Ireland. We have reached a nemesis in our affairs in Ireland, where consumerism is in the process of replacing Christianity as the shaping influence on all our lives. We are rapidly approaching a point where the social and moral order is being dictated by market forces alone. As we build shopping centres with the zest that we once built cathedrals, And as brand names replace saints' names, the land of saints and scholars is being recast as the land of customers and consumers. There is a sense out there that the whole business is out of control. There is no longer any national consensus about what we want as a society, merely a bunch of politicians making it up as they go along. These are the words of an Irish journalist written in the year 2000. And just a few months ago, in July 2019, Ireland's Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, in a Parliament exchange, compared the leader of the opposition party, Fianna Fáil, Micheál Martin, to, and I quote, one of those parish priests who preaches from the altar, telling us to avoid sin, while secretly going behind the altar and engaging in any amount of sin himself. The words of our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister. It seems that not only is consumerism replacing Christianity, but all respect for Christians, for Catholic Christians at any rate, is ended. But is this the case? This paper will argue that the situation is somewhat more complex. For Ireland is still among the most Christian countries in Europe, and Ireland's Catholics still have a high rate of practice of their faith. It seems the truth of the matter is indeed more complex. So to explore the complexity of Christianity in Ireland, I shall firstly begin by simply laying out the facts, what the statistics tell us. Then I think it will be helpful to take a broad overview of the story of Christianity, and in particular Catholicism, because Catholicism is the dominant form of Christianity in Ireland. The third section of the paper then will seek to interrogate the reality of today. In an Ireland where an Irish priest, Brendan Hoban, in a recent essay in the Irish Jesuit Publication Studies, commented that for the Irish Catholic Church, the tectonic plates have really shifted. And finally and fourthly, I will seek to suggest how my Christianity, and again in Ireland's case this largely means the Catholic Church, seek to exist, perhaps even flourish, in a world which will continue to change rapidly, A world wherein optionality and consumerism are here to stay, at least for the immediate future. So firstly, the facts, what the statistics tell us. 
A Pew Research survey completed in 2017 informs us that Ireland remains one of the most Christian countries in Western Europe. Four out of five Irish people identify as Christian. With the exception of Portugal, this apparently is the highest figure across the continent. One third of Irish people attend church regularly. That is just behind Portugal at 35% and Italy 40%. During Pope Francis's visit to Ireland for two days last year, 2018, a half a million people were expected in Dublin's Phoenix Park for the Papal Mass, and the Irish media gave virtually 48-hour coverage of the visit. He was just there for two days. The most recent Irish census of 2016 found that almost 4 million people, 78% of the population, identified as Catholics. While this is down from the 84% of the 2011 census, it is still a substantial number of people. 78%. The percentage varies between rural and urban. Dublin, the capital city in particular, has a lower percentage, and it varies by age. 75.5% of those aged less than one are identified as Catholic by their parents, 83.5% of 11-year-olds, 60% of 27-year-olds, and rising again to a peak for 82-year-olds of 91.2%. Mm-hmm. Another survey completed between 2014-2016 by two universities in Europe, showed that Irish people between the ages of 16 and 29 ranked among the most religious in Ireland, alongside the Poles and the Lithuanians. 54% of people aged 16 to 29 identify as Catholic, 5% as belonging to other Christian denominations, 2% as being part of a non-Christian religion, and 39% as no religion. Before independence, Ireland got independence in 1921, and we became an Irish free state in 1937 with our constitution. And Con, I think, will be talking more about this part of history tomorrow. We showed that in each of the four censuses held from 1881 to 1911, Roman Catholics represented an average of 90%, 89.5% of the population. So 1881 to 1911, 89.5% of the population. A recent Pew report indicates that 80% of Irish identify as Catholics, while 37% attend church monthly. So we've gone from 89.5% to 80% in just over 100 years. It seems that consumerism has not yet replaced Christianity. Nonetheless, there is no reason for complacency. The problems are many, and the fact that there is indeed an ongoing decrease in numbers attending church is a serious cause of concern. So to our second part, Ireland and Christianity, a little bit of history. At this point, I think some background in Ireland and its relation with Christianity is helpful, as it seems strange to be concerned about a country where 80% identify as Christian and about a third of those attend church regularly. Christianity has been in Ireland since at least the fifth century. That is for more than 1,500 years. In the southwest of the country, in an area known as Kirkaguina, archaeological explorations of ecclesial runes date the runes from year four, around four, the 450s. This was at the same time as when St. Patrick was meant to have come to Ireland in 432. So Christianity in Ireland predates St. Patrick, who was very famous. In Ireland, we refer to the era from 600 to 900 AD as a golden era of learning, when Ireland was termed the island of saints and scholars. This was an era when many people came to Ireland to study, 
when Irish monasteries produced wonderful manuscripts, such as the Book of Kells, which we have in Trinity, and when the Irish gained a reputation as great pilgrims travelling back into mainland Europe to re-evangelise it. Yet this wonderful story does not tell us that 80% of the people on this island were Christian, or that a third of them were going to church. The historian Peter Brown reminds us that while the monasteries in Ireland flourished, and were indeed powerhouses of learning, centres of culture, there were large numbers of peoples living outside this monastic form of life, many unlearned and unchristianized people. So, even then, we had an island of saints and scholars in the midst of another very different world. This golden age ended, and the type of Christianity changed. Monasteries from mainland Europe, such as the Benedictines and the Cistercians came, as did orders such as the Dominicans and the Franciscans. The Irish church became what we call Romanized. Life was difficult, and the island was invaded regularly by Vikings from this part of the world, <laughs> and then by the Normans from the nearby British Isles. Christianity lasted, but not without difficulty. The Norman invasion of Ireland in the late 12th century marked the beginning of 700 years of English presence in Ireland. And in 1541, the English crown asserted full control of Ireland, with the Irish Parliament bestowing the title of King of Ireland on Henry VIII. This was the era of the Reformation and the Plantations, when Irish people were put off their land and Protestant settlers from England and Scotland were settled on Irish land. This marked a significant point in the relationship between the two countries, and centuries of conflict followed. The penal laws, a code of laws passed by the Protestant Parliament of Ireland, regulating the status of Roman Catholics, were imposed. According to one author, the declared purpose of the Irish penal laws, like that of the apartheid laws of recent South African history, was to disenfranchise the native majority from all power, both political and economic. Unlike apartheid, the disabilities created by the penal laws were aimed not at a particular race or ethnic group, but at the adherents or the followers of a particular religion. The ideal was to entice the colonised Irish into wholesale conversion to Protestantism. A Catholic could avoid the oppressive effects of these laws by conversion, although the statutes went to great lengths to search out insincere conversions and backsliders. By deliberately defining the haves and the have-nots, the politically powerful and the oppressed on the basis of religion, these statutes had a profound effect, not only on the 18th century, but on the subsequent history of Ireland. These laws were rescinded in 1829 with what we call Catholic emancipation. This era of penal laws could perhaps be compared to the underground church in China or to the church behind the Iron Curtain. Monasteries were suppressed. Catholics who could afford it went to the continent for education. Some became ordained priests and hence the proliferation of Irish colleges. While Protestants would indeed have gone to church regularly on the island of Ireland, it is unlikely that 37% of Catholics would have attended any form of public worship regularly during these centuries. The next event then of significance is the potato famine of the 1840s. At this time, a million people are estimated to have died and a further two million emigrated. And these would have largely have been amongst the poorer Catholic population. This large scale immigration, which began in the 1840s, continued right up until the 1950s. 
And then we come to a key figure in terms of the story, the recent story of Catholicism in Ireland. Archbishop Paul Cullen, who lived from 1803 to 1878, returned to Ireland from Rome in 1850 and was shocked by the devastation wrought by the famine. An ultramontanist, that means that he saw the Pope as the key and was in favour of papal infallibility, he was appointed so that he would bring the Irish church and the hierarchy into closer harmony with the Roman church. And if we had time, we'll see that that was very much a part of the early church as well. The Irish church, what we call the insular church, was distinct from the Roman church. And then when in our history, it remained a little bit distinct, but now Cullen comes back to make the Irish church more like the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, a strong connection, and also to give pride back to this suppressed country. He, Cullen, had a profound impact on the church in Dublin and in Ireland. For Cullen, obedience to command and order were essential to the church. He sought to relieve poverty, of which there was a huge amount in Ireland. We had the worst slums in Europe in the early 1900s. So Cullen sought to relieve poverty and to rescue this Catholic country from the religious inferiority in which it now lies. Cullen fostered the development of popular Catholic piety, which led to what we have termed a unique form of Irish piousness. Emmett Larkin, an Irish scholar, has termed this a devotional revolution. Cullen also did a lot of work to seek to expand the influence of the Catholic Church into the civic and political life of Ireland. His key mission was to reassert Catholicism in the public sphere. It's from this very recent period in Irish history that we can trace the birth of what is termed the exceptional Irish Catholic piety. The Irish Catholic belief and practice which developed in this era was indeed exceptional, and it distinguished Ireland and Irish Catholicism from the rest of Europe. Catholic religious practice came to be at the heart of Irish social life as recently as the late 19th century. From the perspective of this paper, the question of this paper, Consumerism Replaces Christianity, Emmett Larkin's essay in Cardinal Paul Cullen and His World makes a pertinent comment. Cardinal Cullen, he says, was aware of the dangers that the modern liberal secular state would pose to the Catholic Church in Ireland. An ecclesiastical imperialist, Cullen believed that the secular state promotes society which, when unmasked, would be exposed as promoting materialism dressed up as progress, premised on, and I quote, rampant and irresponsible individualism and infected by the values of the Enlightenment. Cullen. This sounds all too familiar today. Some people would see this unmasking of the secular state in today's consumer society in Ireland. And so to the third part of the paper, is Ireland Christian today? Undoubtedly, it is true to say that for the Irish Catholic Church, the tectonic plates have really shifted. In the late 20th and early 21st century, we have, and I quote again, seen the church brought almost to its knees by a succession of unsavoury scandals. And I'd say it is very difficult to distinguish whether the decrease in Christian practice is from the scandals or from consumerism. While the scandals are usually blamed, one could reasonably suggest that consumerism might be more the cause. And yet we have had time to prepare for the situation we find ourselves in. In 1978, the National Conference of Priests in Ireland complained 
We feel that the swamping environment by consumerism has created an environment hostile to the survival of real religion. Cardinal Cullen, 100 years ago, could only agree and perhaps say, well, I did warn you. And yet no one would like to return to the conformity of the Cullen era. Irish society has changed. People have options they never had before. Even before the ecclesial sex abuse scandals came to the forefront in Ireland, things were changing. Optionality. The optionality that accompanies consumerism is where Charles Taylor might invite us to best look to seek to explain the changes in Irish society and religious practice. According to William Kavanagh, for Taylor, secularisation is not simply a change in what people believe, but in the underlying conditions of belief. A great many people in Ireland and in the West more generally still believe in God and many still go to church. What has changed most profoundly is the fact that belief in God and participation in the church is now optional in a way that it was not before. In 1950 and 1960, and even 1970, when I was growing up, to be Irish was to be Catholic. This is not the case today. Taylor, in his A Secular Age, seeks to explain this process in the West. And I quote, The change I want to define and trace is one which takes us from a society in which it was virtually impossible not to believe in God, to one in which faith, even for the staunchest believer, is one human possibility among others. Ireland has changed rapidly. We have followed the economic modernization and secularization of other Western countries, but at a very fast rate. Ireland has experienced what we might call compressed modernity. We have grown up very quickly. In growing up, it is normal for most people to reject something of the past, of their tradition. In Ireland, to reject the past was to reject the conformity of the tight Catholic way of life which had developed from the Cullen era, and which marked our distinctiveness from the British colonial power we sought to overcome. The institutional church was too much associated with control and conformity, with obligation. It had been the centre of people's lives, and this all changed very rapidly. Television came to Ireland in 1962 with our own Irish channel, free secondary education in 1968, and then we also have the Second Vatican Council in the early 60s. Emigrants, Irish emigrants, had more opportunities to return home with new ideas and experiences. And then we had the Celtic Tiger of the 2000s, which meant that many migrants came into Ireland with different ideas and different religions. Today, there are many ways of being Irish. To be Catholic is not necessary. Identity is now a consumer choice. Optionality and plurality would appear to be the new norm. But perhaps the plurality and optionality are not as free as they may seem. The Irish media is almost without exception hostile to the church, to the Catholic church. The church is excluded from public relevance. In recent debates and referenda on the issues of abortion and same-sex marriage, areas where the Catholic church has particular teachings, the Christian voice was virtually absent from the public sphere. Indeed, a question needs to be explored as to whether or not the church is itself imposing this silence, unable to exercise its voice amongst a myriad of others, afraid to be just one voice amongst others, 
fearful it may be disobeyed, and so perhaps opting to remain silent. So has consumerism, choice, optionality taken over Christianity? I shop, therefore I am, has become the new catchphrase of this throwaway era. A new shopping mall built in Dublin about 15 years ago quickly came to be called a cathedral. It was where people opted to go on Sunday instead of to church. The Irish Sports Organisation, the GAA for our own Irish sports, Gaelic sports, was once a great supporter of the Catholic Church. But it now has practice for children on Sunday mornings, and so families have to choose between sport or mass for their children. Consumerism definitely rivals Christianity in seeking to cultivate our desires. A consumerist culture is market-driven. To survive, the market must seduce us. It must tempt us, create in us the desire to shop, shop, shop. We must eat in this new restaurant, try this new craft beer. Business needs to maximise profit. The question remains, <coughs> are we free? Markets are already personalised. We go online, we buy, we buy in huge shops. The same shop, whether we are in Dublin or Cork or indeed Lund. We are being seduced. Our desires now are being colonised. Market demands that our needs are multiplied. A never-expanding horizon of desire is necessitated if the market is to remain profitable. A friend said to me recently, when I go to Lidl or Aldi, I discover all the things I just cannot do without. Choice, it seems, liberates me, and there's no going back. Similarly with faith, I can choose, I am free. And it is not all bad. Ireland has benefited from capitalism, from modernity. It is good to be able to have a pair of shoes. Many Irish people in the 60s, kids especially, didn't have shoes. And indeed, it's good to have a spare pair of shoes for when they get wet. It is good to be able to choose to emigrate or not. Women are free to work. Women are free to marry or not marry. So there's many good things that have come with these changes. Now a word from Pope Francis. Pope Francis, in his Apostolic Exhortation 2013, Evangelium Gaudi, the joy of the gospel, is insightfully critical of consumerism gone astray. So not just of consumerism, but consumerism gone astray. His insights, I think, are pertinent to Ireland. The Irish people are indeed experiencing a turning point in history. Advances in science and technology have improved people's lives. Healthcare, education and communications have all improved radically. Yet for many, there is no joy in living. Suicide statistics remain high. Violence seems to be increasing. Respect for others declining. For many, as Francis, Pope Francis notes, it is a struggle to live and often to live with precious little dignity. This change has been set in motion by the enormous qualitative, quantitative, rapid and cumulative advances occurring in the sciences and in technology and by their instant application in different areas of nature and of life. We are in an age of knowledge and information, which has led to new and often anonymous kinds of power. He says the free market's trickle-down theory of economic growth is not working. It never has, for, he says, it expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. Meanwhile, the excluded are still waiting. To sustain a lifestyle which excludes others, or to sustain enthusiasm for that selfish ideal, a globalization of indifference has developed. Almost without being aware of it, 
we end up being incapable of feeling compassion at the outcry of the poor. We're incapable of weeping for other people's pain and feeling a need to help them, as though it were all someone else's responsibility, not ours. The culture of prosperity deadens us. We are thrilled if the market offers us something new to purchase. In the meantime, all those lives stunted for lack of opportunity seem a mere spectacle. They fail to move us. Evangelium Gaudium 54. So we are reduced to being consumers. The market is deified. Corruption, and what Francis terms the self-serving tax evasion, are widespread. As he notes, the thirst for power and possessions knows no limits. Unbridled consumerism is damaging the social fabric of Irish society. In this world, God, faith, can only be seen as dangerous and threatening. Christian teaching is clear. If we go back to John Chrysostom, not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood. It is not our own goods which we hold, but theirs. And so is Christian Ireland godless. Besides consumerism, it seems from another perspective that in Ireland we are witnessing a disintegration of society. The rural society is changed utterly because people now commute long distances to work and no longer know one another. Ich glaube nicht an Gott, aber ich furte eine gutlose Gesellschaft. I don't believe in God, but I fear a godless society. These are the words of the left-wing politician Gregor Giese. Is Ireland godless? Have the scandals so rocked us that we shall never recover? Gregor Giese, an atheist, fears a godless society. Christianity, he believes, has given Europe its moral core. While in Ireland we still have people affiliated to Christianity, so the statistics tell us, a third worship regularly, today some of us wonder if our moral core has gone. In recent history we have had the dreadful story of two 12-year-olds murdering a 13-year-old. Just last week on our news we heard that a 50-year-old father of six, a businessman, was abducted from outside his home as he arrived home from work and brutally beaten. We have more homeless on our streets in Ireland, in Dublin, than ever before. We have had the Celtic tiger, that upsurge in wealth, which has its roots in banks and big building companies' corrupt dealings in the marketplace. All this in the recent years of the 21st century. Have the Irish become godless Christians? Francis in Evangelii Gaudi warns of a culture of indifference a culture which does not feel for others. He asks, how can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure, but it is news when the stock market loses two points? Can we continue to stand by when food is thrown away while people are starving? At this point, I think we can say to Francis, Pope Francis, that Ireland is still Christian, at least today. It is a news item in Ireland when a homeless person dies. People are moved from the suffering of others. In 2017, the government spent 743 million on Ireland's aid programme. In 2014, the OECD said that Ireland sets an example in focusing development aid on neediest countries. The well-known Brookings Institution said a number of years ago that Irish aid was the outstanding aid donor. The Irish public give very generously when it comes to special appeals. Some of you will remember Bono and U2 and the Boomtown Rats in 1985, 
raising funds for the Ethiopian famine disaster. In 1973, the Irish bishops established Trokra, an Irish aid group, because they identified Ireland as rich among the other nations of the world. Ireland's missionaries have gone all over the world. Irish priests, brothers and religious sisters looked after the sick, the homeless, the unmarried, and educated the poor in Ireland, when no one else would do it. They continue today, as seen in iconic figures such as Paul, Father Peter McVerry, a Jesuit, who looks after homelessness, especially young men, Sister Stanislaus Kennedy, a religious sister of charity, who again, homelessness, and Sister Concilio, an Irish nun, who set up a, an organisation for addicts, drug and alcohol addicts. They've done great work. So my thesis is that consumerism has not replaced Christianity just yet. But the times are, are dangerous. The three people I've identified are all in their 70s and 80s. We are in Ireland's Catholic twilight, Ireland's Christian twilight, perhaps. A recent article in Studies identifies well the complex times we live in. Appropriately for our context here in Lund, it cites from a short essay by Stieg Daggerman, poet, novelist and critic, published in a Swedish magazine, um, I won't use any Swedish, <laughs> but our need for consolation is impossible to satisfy. It is one of his last works, and in it Dagerman develops his reflections on the meaning of existence, of life and of death. It is described as an autobiographical essay, which describes his struggles and his search for a way to stay alive. It was published in 1955 after his death. It has been described as a small work of hope. The first two paragraphs go as follows. Now, this is cited by an Irishman in an Irish publication. I lack faith, and for that reason can never be a happy man. For a happy man should never fear that his life is a pointless, aimless race towards certain death. I am heir to no suitable fixed place on earth whence I might attract the attention of some god. Neither am I heir to the skeptic's well-concealed rage or the atheist's ardent innocence. I do not therefore dare to throw stones at one who believes in what I doubt or as one who worships doubt as if it too were not encompassed by darkness. I should be hit by such a stone for of one thing I am sure, that a person's need for comfort is insatiable. I stalk comfort like a hunter stalks his prey. Wherever I glimpse it in the woods I shoot. More often than not I hit nothing but air though sometimes a kill pops down at my feet. Since I know that the constancy of comfort is no greater than the winds in the crown of a tree, I make haste to devour my victim. Not long after these words were written, Stig Daggerman, a gifted writer who lived intensely, trying to balance on a precipice that hung over a menacing world, died by his own hand, aged just 31, I believe. The context of his writings were the 40s and early 50s, a time of purposelessness and hopelessness, during which he hovered between insight and despair, at once recognising the insatiability of comfort and the impossibility of achieving it, the loss of meaning and the pull of death, with no God to create a sustaining upward movement. With the decline in a religious sense and the loss of context and the vocabulary of faith, Ireland in the 21st century could be said to be facing into Dagerman's experience of purposelessness and hopelessness. With no God to raise heart and mind, or even to distract us from the still, sad music 
of hopelessness and the looming spectre of death, society is being forced to confront the question, is this all there is? Many, like Dagerman, as in the quotation above, will long for a God who might connect the lived reality of their life with a God who will give meaning to the human journey. Christians, the hungry sheep that Augustine speaks of, will not be fed unless there is some credible breaking of the bread to mediate something of the comfort and the solace of God's presence in the world. But an Irish priest, Brendan Hoban, writes, are we able for it? For who will there be to articulate Dagerman's dilemma? The thirst for meaning combined with the conviction that faith in God seems impossibly remote in the lived reality of life. Who will attest to the presence of a God who loves us beyond all reason and all imagining? For priests we will have none, and the few we have may not be up to us. So are we in Ireland able for it? Hoban, Brendan Hoban's article and challenge reminds me of an address given by the Archbishop of Dublin, Dimmert Martin, in a summer school in Ireland in 2005. And his question was, will Ireland be Christian in 2030? Both Hoban and Martin, priest and archbishop, seem to agree that Ireland is still Christian, more or less, at the beginning of the 21st century. Both agree that the situation of faith in Ireland is indeed in crisis. Martin critiques a faith, a spirituality, that believes in a generic God of our own creation, and an Ireland which seems to be quenching the human desire for the transcendent. Um, Martin identifies a need to rejuvenate the church and the need for dialogue, a dialogue with culture that may at times need to be countercultural. The church needs to rethink its mission. And almost 15 years later, 2019, Hoban asks, and I repeat, who will attest to the presence of a God who loves us beyond all reason and all imagining? For priests we will have none, and the few we have may not be up to it. Who will now articulate this religious vision? Who will speak of God? Who or what can give meaning to people in oft times apparently meaningless lives? How can people be enabled to break from the prison of consumer desire the market wishes to entrap us in? This next and the final section is poised around the thoughts of two Irish poets, Seamus Heaney and Brendan Kennelly. Seamus Heaney pointed us in the right direction, I believe, when he wrote that Catholicism has given me the right to joy. People may talk about the effects of a Catholic upbringing in sociological terms, repression, guilt, prudery. What isn't sufficiently acknowledged is the radiance of Catholicism. Heaney says it gave everything in the world a meaning. It brought a tremendous sense of being, of the dimensions of reality, the shimmering edges of things. That never quite vanishes. The older I Heaney get, the more I remember the benediction of it all. What isn't sufficiently acknowledged is the radiance of Catholicism. It gave everything in the world a meaning. This, I believe, is the role of the church in today's consumerist Ireland, to give meaning, to show to people that there is more to life than work and possessions. The church has a responsibility to educate people, one might say, in what it means to be human. Heaney speaks of the benediction or the blessing of it all, the blessing that life is, that nature is. Catholic Christians celebrate this most in their Eucharistic celebrations. 
But before one can appreciate this, there is a long path of formation. Hoban recognises the still significant commitment among lay people to support the church. There is a real hunger and a real need for formation. The church needs to be seen to be committed to justice, to respect and to transparency in its own structures. This has not been the case. Dialogue and debate need to be engendered. And for this to truly happen, real proper theological formation needs to be made available to all members of the church. Articulate Christians are needed to lead and to speak for the church and for Christian values. Christian values and Christian practices need debate. While many were shocked globally at the outcome of two recent referenda in Ireland, one on abortion, the other on same-sex marriage, some commentators suggested that perhaps it was precisely because a significant number of Irish people are Christian and compassionate that they voted the way they did. And indeed, on the issue of the abortion referendum, the question of truth-telling and the lack of good leadership and advice was seen by many others to be lacking in the public fora. Sometimes, perhaps, compassion, while a good guide, may not be sufficient. This brings us back to the question of the media and back to Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, the Prime Minister, and his comments on the opposition leader comparing him to a sinning priest. The Irish media has done some very good work when it came to the exposure of sex abuse scandals and in other areas of public exposure like the banks. But when it comes in Ireland to attacking my local parish priest, it seems Leo Varadkar went a step too far. Widespread condemnations followed slip and comments. Varadkar may have thought the Catholic Church in Ireland was dead and gone, but he quickly learned that in Ireland, at local level, there is still huge respect for and solidarity with the local priest. The current demonization of priests is not a strategy supported by very many Irish people. A somewhat similar example happened recently when a diocesan bishop, Bishop Ray Brown from Kerry, as a result of the retirement of three priests, each with more than 50 years of service, announced that the parish priest of Kilcommon County Kerry would need to be removed. A petition of 1,200 signatures was handed into the bishop. Now, 1,200 is a lot because it's a rural area. And now they've gone further, they've gone to Rome with their petitions. Irish people support their parish priest. But will they support their children if their child wants to become a priest? Will the people of Kilcommon support their sons to be priests? In these titanic times for the church in Ireland, the truth needs to be faced. Intellectual rigour is required, honest informed thinking and wise informed decision making. Hoban, in his article, calls for a communicable theology that connects with the lived experience of people. People need to be trained theologically for this to happen. The people of the parish of Wilcommon need to be challenged. Why can they not lead their church? And indeed, why has their parish not spawned vocations? So my concluding thoughts. Consumerism has not yet replaced Christianity in Ireland, but it is severely challenging it. Some people call for a more cynical church. In the 1960s, Cardinal Sunans advocated for co-responsibility in the church. But before we can have co-responsibility, we have to have theological formation. In our consumerist world, parents do their best to ensure their children are highly educated so they can succeed in life. 
succession scenes becoming wealthier or succeeding in scenes becoming wealthier than their parents. Church leadership needs to enable Christian children and adults to be educated in the vast repository of richness pertaining to the Christian tradition and to be formed to live in accordance with this tradition. Just as parents educate their children to use the web wisely, we need to carefully educate people so we know that what humanity, Christian humanity, should look like. Many plans can be made, and indeed are being made all the time, but action is now needed. It is time, I suggest, for the Church in Ireland and for all its Christians to, in the words of another Irish poet, Brenda Kennelly, begin again. And I'll finish just with Brendan's poem. He says, and I suppose and I should mention that Brenda Kennelly is from Kerry, but he was a lecturer in Trinity College, Dublin. He wrote, Begin again to the summoning birds, to the sight of the light at the window. Begin to the roar of morning traffic all along Pembroke Road. Every beginning is a promise. Born in light and dying in dark. Dying in dark determination and exaltation of springtime. Flowering the way to work. Begin to the pageant of queuing girls, the arrogant loneliness of swans in the canal, bridges linking the past and future, old friends passing through with us still. Begin to the loneliness that cannot end, since it perhaps is what makes us begin. Begin to wander as unknown faces, at crying birds in the sudden rain, at branches stark in the willing sunlight at seagulls foraging for bread, at couples sharing a sunny secret, alone together while making good. Though we live in a world that dreams of ending, that always seems about to give in, something that will not acknowledge conclusion insists that we forever begin. Every beginning is a promise, and though we live in a world in Ireland that dreams of ending, a Christian Ireland, colonised by consumerism, I think the message for Ireland, the Church in Ireland, is that we must forever begin again. Thank you very much.